Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy, howdy, friends, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. I'm up real early this morning drinking some coffee. We had a jam session last night. I've told you about my Thursday night jam session. And, you know, the weather has turned a little cool, and it was perfect picking weather. And I stayed a little later than I had uh, originally intended to. But we had a great time. And it was kind of odd because I was playing my mandolin. Usually I've been taking the bass to the jam. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to throw my mandolin in the car. Because there have been other mandolin players coming, so there wasn't a bass player handy, so I would play bass, and once in a while, uh, some other folks would show up who played bass, and I might switch to dobro or whatever, just kind of be the utility guy and try to make it happen. Anyway, I put my mandolin in the car, and I thought, well, if, if nobody shows up, I'm just going to get my mandolin out. Well, I get there about a quarter to seven, there's nobody there. Nobody there. So I just, I leave my bass in the car and I just get my mandolin out and I open up the case and I started playing all by myself. And that continued until about uh, maybe 7.30. So about 45 minutes, I just sat there amusing myself playing the mandolin. And I was starting to get kind of warmed up. And then a couple of guys showed up, uh, guitar players. And I just stayed on mandolin the rest of the night. Had a great time. It was, I haven't been playing a lot of mandolin lately. And it was fun to, you know, knock the rust off, you might say. And I think I'm going to continue doing that some. Anyway, as I've said before, uh, starting up your own jam session, you know, is a... Uh, is a commitment. If you start it, you've got to keep it going. So even if nobody shows up, I still have to be there. Because you never know. Somebody might come along and see a poster or a you know, a posting on Facebook and they might might drive an hour to get to the jam. So there better be a jam. So if you start one up, just remember you need to be committed to it. And then if you do call it off, you know, like don't I would never say something like, ah, this just isn't working out, nobody's showing up and all that. You know, perhaps find another reason like, uh, you know, the weather is getting too cold, so we'll restart this in the spring or something, you know, and post a bunch of pictures of the high turnout nights. You'll have better luck, you know, restarting it if you choose to. And we may do that. We may... Um, put this jam into hibernation when the weather gets cold. But I'm telling you what, uh, it was perfect picking weather last night. It was just, just cool enough, and it has driven off all the gnats. And, you know, it, it was only two weeks ago people were complaining and volunteering to bring big industrial fans and this kind of stuff. I'm like, no, nah, that's all right. Leave the fans at home. They're too noisy. Um, anyway, had a good time with the jam and I woke up this morning and wanted to just record, um, this short intro because back in episode bonus episode seven, uh, strike while the iron is hot. I threw the door open for you, the grass talk radio listener to do your own grass talk radio show and I'll put it on here. And I had three people contact me. Uh, we're going to hear from one of those three today. The other two, I've, I'm still back and forth with on with emails and so forth. I don't know how far they've gone, you know, in, in terms of their recording. But today, I'm just going to hand it over. First thing we're going to hear, though, is uh, the guy sent me some tracks just I said, you know, have you got any music or anything you, you want me to put on there? So we're going to begin with just a little um, segue music with uh, Stuart Crawford and uh, one of his pickin' pals, 
doing uh, a little bit of Salt Creek, and then I'm going to turn it over to Stuart Crawford, banjo player from Australia. And I think you're going to find this really fun and interesting. So stick around. I'll be back when he's done to kind of close the show out. So here we go. Take it away, Stuart. Hi and welcome to Grass Talk Radio. My name's Stuart and I'd like to thank Brad for letting me guest host this episode. I'll give you a rundown about what we're going to go through this episode in a moment, but first of all a little bit about me. I consider myself a banjo player first and foremost. I've been playing for a bit over 10 years. I started off taking lessons in the melodic style from a local teacher who was uh, really into that sort of thing as well. Um, learned a lot from him, but I didn't have many people to play with, and I wasn't involved in the bluegrass scene in Canberra at all at the time. I didn't even really know it existed. And so without anyone to spur me on, after a while I sort of put down the banjo for a few years, picked it up every now and then, but didn't really take to it seriously. And then a few years ago I started uh, picking it back up again, started going back over those old melodic uh, lessons, but I decided that if I really wanted to kick myself up a gear, I was going to have to find some other people to play with. So I did that, found a bluegrass session here in Canberra, and that's really given me the, the kick up the pants that I needed. I've been playing the banjo seriously for a couple of years now, and I feel like I've just started to make that progression from being a beginner to a a halfway competent player and so what I'm going to talk about today is one of those things that I found as being formative in that jump for me and I hope it will be for you too. Now I also play a bit of mandolin but I mostly play at an old time session here. All in all I go to a bluegrass jam session, go to an old time session and then I also started up my own mandolin jam session for sort of intermediate students like me. In terms of Brad's skill matrix, I'd say I'm about a a six or a six and a half in terms of ability, maybe about a five in terms of overall musical experience and being an old hand at the jam sessions and gigs and that sort of thing. And I might even say that I'd give myself an eight in knowledge, at least for music theory. And that's what I wanted to share today. But before I move on to that, uh, let me deal with the obvious. You've probably noticed the twang in my accent and that I'm from the the deep, deep, deep south here in Australia. And uh, I think geographically we're about as far as you can get from bluegrass country and the Blue Ridge Mountains. But I think culturally we're perhaps not so distant. And that's what I want to start off with. I want to spin you a yarn about why is an Australian playing bluegrass? Well, it's not as big a leap as you might think. Now, everyone who is an Australian, particularly the Brits, love to remind us that we started off as a convict colony when Europeans came to Australia and it was convicts and some other British people looking for a better life. It was basically a bunch of prison settlements for the first 50-odd years of our history and using convict labour to push out into the frontiers. Um, Lots of Irish and Scots who came across as convicts and they brought their music with them. And the frontiersmen and the convict labourers started the first colonial settlements, pushed out into those frontiers, and plenty of Aboriginal people actually got in on the action too. They'd all go out and play dances, and and the sun went down at the end of the day. They'd all go out and, you know, sit around and play some traditional Irish and Scottish tunes. But what I didn't know, until I was listening to a recording the other day of a presentation that someone did, every year the National Library of Australia does a scholarship in conjunction with the National Folk Festival, which is held here in my hometown of Canberra. Every year they get someone to dig into their library and do a research project. And four years ago, a lady named Miriam Jones did a project on the history of old time and bluegrass music in Australia. And she said something that I had no idea about. 
she said that there's been Australian people playing American fiddle music since at least the 1800s and possibly earlier. So we've been playing this music in a manner of speaking as long as it's been around. And the link was actually Aboriginal musicians. There's a, there's a place where this Aboriginal and American and Australian cultures meet in a little group of islands off an island of Tasmania. And uh, back in the early 1800s, for a little time, that was a hub for the seal skin industry and for the sealing industry. And among the Europeans who came through there were American whalers and sealers, and they ended up marrying the locals and starting families on the island, and they brought their music and their dance with them. And this this uh, tradition continued well into the 20th century. Even in the late 70s, you could hear local musicians on this little remote island playing tunes like Orange Blossom Special and Warbash Cannonball and Turkey in the Straw. And uh, along with the, the seal trade, whaling was a big trade in 19th century Australia and they brought a lot of people in. And the whaling trade is actually the reason for another odd intersection between Australian and American history. The last person to die in the service of the Confederacy was actually an Australian. There was a ship called the Shenandoah, you might have heard of it, that was fitted out in secret in London and it was sent out to target the, the United States whalers and in 1864, it came into Melbourne in Australia and it caused a big furor, a big debate about what should they do because the government, well, they considered the Confederates to basically be pirates. They were just roaming around the seas, picking off defenceless uh, whaling ships and so they didn't really want to welcome the Confederates in but the locals, well, equally... They thought they were, the Confederates were pirates and that was sort of glamorous to them. And so eventually they were allowed ashore and uh, there was a whole series of parties through Melbourne. People hosted things like Buccaneers Balls to welcome them and they were the toast of the town. And during that time, 42 people snuck onto the ship to serve aboard and they sailed around the oceans hunting these whaling vessels but then, unbeknownst to them, they were still sailing around and attacking after the Civil War ended. And they kept going at first, not realising that the war had ended, and then, when they'd been told, refusing to believe it was really over. And one of the Australians aboard that ship died when they were out there, and that made him the last man to die in the service of the Confederacy. But the welcome given to the Confederates would have been an embarrassment to Australian high society, but then early colonial Australia was famously lacking in high culture and intellectual refinement. As you can imagine, lots of convicts coming out, not very well educated. Even the settlers, you know, they weren't really the cream of the crop in British society. They were out here because there were no good lives left for them in Britain. So what sort of entertainment did that bring about? Well, you needed something cheap, something portable and an instrument that was pretty easy to learn. When your neighbours live about a day or more's journey away and music teachers are pretty thin on the ground and you don't get many piano removalists and piano tuners coming by your way, then you need to make do and you need to play instruments that you can learn by yourself and that, frankly, don't take a huge amount of technical finesse and skill to play that lend themselves to that folk style. With that said, there was a piano came out on the first fleet of convicts in 1788 and a few intrepid people even got porters to carry their pianos overland to their country homes and their homesteads. But by and large in Australia in those early days, it was lots of concertinas and a few fiddles, banjos, guitars, mandolins. And when people did come together, it was often for what we call bush dances, which is pretty much just the same thing as a barn dance. And I reckon mandolins in particular have got a special place in Australian musical history because they really tell the story of the progression of music throughout history. It started off with the Irish and the European and the, the British music. And then 
in World War II, a lot of people were displaced and made refugees by the conflict, particularly a lot of Eastern Europeans. And so after World War II, Australia got a lot of people from Europe, from the Mediterranean, from Eastern Europe in particular, and their waltzes and polkas fitted in really nicely with the mandolin. In fact, I guess you could say bluegrass is itself really not much more than waltzes and polkas just by another name. And it was the folk festivals of the 1970s that brought all of these influences together and formed the scene that we have today. And along with that, along with that lived, performed folk tradition, when mass media came along, country music was very popular. Uh, It was things like the Grand Old Opry, so we got a lot of American influence and also a lot of local talent. In fact, a popular Australian country and Western singer, Smokey Dawson, promoted his office as the Australian branch of the Grand Old Opry. And again, there's a big Aboriginal connection here. There were a lot of very well-known and very influential Aboriginal country music writers and performers. The story songs of country music fit really well with their storytelling culture, and so they had a very big influence in the history of Australian country music. So I think you can see that there are actually a lot of cultural factors that are similar to the United States. We had a frontier society. We also had a lot of Americans come over here in the gold rush. Our move from a a rural society into an urban one coincided with the American experience. Country music was big on the radio at the same time. And perhaps the most important thing was that folk festivals got taken up particularly by the educated urban types at about the same time as they did in the States. So the folk festivals brought together these influences in the mid-60s and 70s and they brought in more recent genres like true bluegrass as we recognise it today. And in 1966 apparently we had our first bluegrass album and the scene has stayed strong ever since then. But uh, even though there are a lot of similarities to the states, there are a lot of differences too. Uh, Not just the fact that we still have a queen, which again the British love to remind us of, Unlike the United States, the punters here pretty much have no idea about bluegrass. For them, it begins and ends at dueling banjos. If they're really cluey, then they might know about all scrugs, or they might think Mumford and Sons is bluegrass, and that's something. They even seen someone playing a banjo. But most most people who are going along to a, a bluegrass gig don't really differentiate between Americana and alt country and bluegrass and old-timey, it's all sort of the same thing to them. But it also means that uh, there aren't that many local bands and from town to town there might only be a few bands or even one or two in any place or even none. And so it means that if you want to make a go of it and you want to get out and get plenty of gigs, you've got to join that folk festival scene. And that also means that the bands that do exist... Everyone knows everyone and there's a lot of cross-pollination and a lot of exposure to other genres. The Australian folk festivals are every sort of folk music you can imagine from people with bells and blackened faces and sticks with bells on them doing Morris dancing to old English ballads to, to you know classical Indian music to Italian music to everything you can possibly imagine. And so that leads to a wide exposure to different styles and different genres. And I think it means people aren't too precious about what counts as bluegrass. You know, you might do some of the standards, but then you might whack a Django Reinhardt tune in a set and no one will really bat an eyelid. And uh, that's sort of the the potted history of, of how we came to be where we are. I think you'll agree that it's perhaps unlikely to come across people playing bluegrass this far south, but when you think about the history, it's actually not that surprising. Now, speaking of great American cultural exports, I'm going to move on to the topic at hand, the music theory topic at hand, with a a sort of a pitch you might hear on a TV shopping ad. Uh, You know, has this ever happened to you? Has this ever happened to you? You know, you try to improvise when you hand it a solo, but the notes don't quite fit the chords, or... You know, you try to improvise and you only play the chords. And 
you know, the notes in the chord fit and you can keep just, you know, picking around on that chord shape, but it starts to sound boring and after a while, doesn't really have much tension or much variety or much propulsion or much movement. Or, or maybe this is you, maybe you can play tab, but you have no idea how to go about making your own arrangements or how to embellish a simple melody. Or maybe this is you. We've all been there, really. You know, you going along, you're clipping along with that arrangement you know well, and then all of a sudden you hit a bum note and that throws you off for a few bars. You sort of try to unknot your fingers, try to figure out where you're at, all the time playing nothing, trying to get back on the rails to find those notes that do work and find that arrangement that you do know. Well, I'm going to try and help you with all of this. I'm going to tell you about a little bit of music theory that's really helped me and, at least in my experience, was part of getting past that speed bump from being a beginner player to a possibly might start to call myself a, a competent banjo player. Now, one of those things is music theory, which I'm about to talk about. Another one is learning to practice well, which Brad's talked about. So you can go and check out his podcasts about that. And the third thing is to go and play with others. Brad said it, he's had podcasts about it, but being thrown at the deep end was probably the best thing that I've ever done in terms of improving my ability. But let's go back to this little corner of music theory. If the words that I'm about to use, like chord tones and speaking about the, the root and the third and the, the fifth of a chord, talking about progressions in terms of Roman numerals and numbers, if that sort of thing doesn't make sense to you, uh, we have an expression in Australia, do yourself a favour. Go and pick up one of Brad's books that deals with this. From memory, the Flint Hill Scrolls or the Mandolin Masterclass deal with this very well. And these will give you the building blocks that you need to understand what I'm about to talk about. If those sorts of terms don't make any sense to you, then go back, read up on one of Brad's books, and then come back and listen to this once you've sorted that out in your head, because that's really key to what I'm about to talk about. Now, I mentioned before that this was part of my journey of going from being a beginner sort of a player to being a competent intermediate sort of a player. The, the big moment that highlighted this for me was when I was playing electric guitar at a church uh, practice session and I'd been thinking, it had been rolling around in my head that you don't just have to play the notes that are in a chord. You can play other notes, but I had absolutely no idea how to do this in a way that sounded good. I knew when I fluked it, it'd sound all right. I could tell in my ear that it worked, but I couldn't tell you why. But more often than fluking it would be when I played something that just didn't fit whatsoever. And I remember one time at this practice session playing electric guitar, being so frustrated that I just played any note that I could find on the fingerboard just to, you know, sort of bash up against that wall and try and figure out what it was that worked and what it was that didn't work. And I remember talking to various people, talking to my sister-in-law saying, how does this work? How can you play notes that aren't in a chord and they still work? And she sort of looked at me blankly. And so that led to me going to a book fair and I picked up this absolute doorstop of a music theory book. I started at page one and I just worked my way through every day on the bus ride to work. And one day I read a chapter on something called embellishing tones or non-chord tones with all these fancy European words like appoggiatura, anechape. But when I got to the end, I realized that this was it. This was the section that had answered all these questions that I'd had. And it was a classic case of you can't ask what you don't know. When I spoke to my friends that I've been talking to, asking them these questions about how I'd had this epiphany that there were these things called non-chord tones and these things called embellishing tones, all of them who'd studied music theory at school, it was like I was stating the bleeding obvious to them. But when I'd asked them before, the question that I asked was too vague for them to understand what I was getting at. And it turns out that doorstop of a book that I bought was the standard textbook for music theory students. 
my sister-in-law who studied composition at university, this had been her set text for music theory lessons. And the thing that I find really fascinating about this is that you already know what I'm about to tell you. In your ear, when you hear a piece of music and when you play a note, you can tell intuitively if it fits or if it doesn't fit and if it resolves well or it doesn't resolve well. But without being able to conceptualize this in your mind, you can't do it. You can hear it and you know what's right and you know what's wrong, but you can't play it until you understand what's going on underneath. And I think that's amazing that our subconscious already knows it, but we need to put it into words and to hear it explained to know what it is. So let me cut to the chase. Let me explain it to you. You have chord tones. You know about those. They're the notes that are in a chord. If you've read Brad's books, you'll know this. A G chord is what? A G, a B, and a D. A C chord is a C, an E, and a G. That's pretty self-explanatory. The chord tones are the notes in a chord that you're playing over. The non-chord tones, well, that's also sort of self-explanatory. It's everything else. Even the notes that aren't in the scale. You can and should play these non-chord tones because they give the music tension and interest, but they want to resolve to something more stable. This is done by making sure that the non-chord tone is always connected to a neighbouring chord tone, either before or after it. Now, that's a little bit hard to conceptualise, but we want to keep those chord tones and those non-chord tones tied together by step, by one note apart. So, let's say you're playing over a G chord. You could play a G and then go up to a C and then go up again to a D and you've jumped from the G to the C but then you've resolved by step from C to D. The C and the D are only a step apart. Or you could play a G, go down to an F sharp, and then up to a B, because the G and the F sharp are only a step apart, and then you can leap up to that stable chord tone, the B. But what you couldn't do over a G chord is you couldn't play a G, a C, and then another G, because that C note isn't part of the G chord. It's just hanging out there, unconnected to any neighbouring notes that anchor it and give it stability. And the chord tones depend on the chord that's currently being played. Whenever the chord changes, the chord tones change. This is obvious, but it's worth keeping in mind. It means that a note that sounds stable over one chord may need to be resolved in another, or likewise, it might mean that a note that sounds unstable over one chord, if you wait a bar or a beat even, and then play it again, that may sound fine. So really, this is what it all boils down to. You just keep that up with each non-chord tone connected to a neighbouring chord tone on one side of it, and there you have it. That's melody in a nutshell. Of course, there are lots of variations about how you can deploy these, and it's much easier heard than said. So I'm going to get out the piano and show you what I'm talking about, and I hope these will give you a better idea of, of what I mean. Now, these examples will sound nothing like bluegrass because I'm playing on a piano and I'm playing very basic things, but the piano will give you a much better idea of the way the underlying harmony and the melody work together. Apologies also to any pianists out there. I am not a piano player by any stretch, but this is the best tool that we've got to, to talk about this, uh, this concept. So here we go. So I'm going to use the, the uh, technical terms for these different types of embellishing tones, but I'll include a link at the show notes that will run you down all of these, so you don't need to keep the names in mind, just get the feel of what they sound like. So the first one is a neighbor tone. So you just play the chord tone and you just play the next note up and then go back to the original chord tone. Over a G chord, we go G, A, back to the G, or we could go G, F sharp, Back to the G. And we could go up, we could go B, C, back to the B. Or we could go B, A, back to the B. That's pretty simple. The next one is a passing tone. So you just start on the chord tone and just go up or down by step until you reach the next chord tone. Here we go, over a G chord again. G, A, B, 
or going down. B, A, G. Now in a bluegrass context, you can also do this chromatically. And Earl Scruggs does this a lot, particularly when he's going through the four and the five chord because they're only a tone apart. So he'll be doing things like this, going And other tunes like uh, Cherokee Shuffle will do that, just step down by semitones until they reach the chord tone. The next one that we're going to talk about is the double neighbor tone. Now, I find this one a little bit in, particularly in melodic banjo, it just works really nicely bouncing around over that G. So what we do is we play again over the G chord, we play the chord tone, we play a note underneath, the note above that, and then back to the original tone, like this. So we go G, F sharp, A, G. And the next one is, uh, is that appoggiatura that I mentioned before. So you start on the chord tone, you leap up to a non-chord tone, so you're going more than a step, and then you step back to a chord tone. So here we go. Key, uh, chord of uh, G again. So let's go from a G to a C and then back down to a B. Or we could go in the other direction. We could go a D to an F sharp to a G. And the escape tone or the échappé that I mentioned before excuse my excuse my French as we say, um, that is basically the, the same idea reversed. So you do a step and then a leap. So for example, we have a, a G, F sharp, and then going up to a D. Or we could do that the other way. We could go from a B to a C to a G. And then the last one that I'll mention is the anticipation. And this is particularly when you're playing over chord changes. I mentioned before playing that note a little bit early that doesn't work over that chord, but if you wait one beat and the chord changes, it suddenly works. So if we were going from in the key of G, from a G chord to a C chord, if we played a C note, so we go G, C, and then we play that C note again over a C chord, suddenly it sounds nice and it sounds resolved. So again, it's not important to remember the names, it's just a matter of hearing how it works. Now, you might notice that the resources that I'll link to in the show notes page say that you have to resolve in the opposite direction to the leap. So going G, C, B. Or a better example would be going G, E, D. Now, in my experience, in folk music, this rule is broken about as often as it's obeyed. So I think you can ignore that advice. If we go G, C, D, we've gone up. We haven't gone in the opposite direction to the leap, we've gone in the same direction. We've gone up and then up again, rather than going up and then down. Or conversely, going down and then up. Like I say, that rule is really not obeyed in folk music, so you can ignore that. That's just a little aside. It's probably a little bit convoluted and hard to follow, but for those of you that have followed along, uh, well done. And that's one of the classical jazz sort of rules that really doesn't apply to folk music. But this really opens up a whole world for you. You're not even limited by the notes in a scale. You know, you can introduce some chromatic notes, and as long as they resolve nicely, then you can get away with it. So let's go, for example, a G to a C sharp to a D, that resolves nicely. And that actually crops up in at least one fiddle tune that I can think of. And a lot of 
art song from the 40s and 50s that happens quite a lot. But you can see that you can use those chromatic notes that will resolve really nicely if you just know what you're doing. But in my experience, those chromatic notes like to dissolve, like to resolve upwards and not down. In Australia, we call this a bit of a clangor. Here we go. It sounds all right, but the high note tends to be the one that sticks out in our mind. And so having that chromatic note there instead of a note that's actually in the scale can just sort of stick out a little bit. And this also means that when you come across chords that use notes outside the scale, it really opens up your, your palette of the notes that you can play, particularly over blues. You know, you'll often have a, um, a dominant seventh over a four chord, and that's including a, uh, a B flat if we're in the key of G, when ordinarily it'd be a B. So it's just opening up that sonic palette for you to break out of just playing the scale for that key and realizing that expressive potential. Again, with the blues, um, they'll often have flatted thirds or sevenths or even fifths over a particular major chord. So you can give your playing a really bluesy feel with that. You know, a bit of, a bit of that sort of thing. But how does this all apply to bluegrass? Like I said before, this is just playing some notes on a piano. It's not really bluegrassy. I'm going to show my banjo bias here because I think it's possibly the most difficult bluegrass instrument to apply these principles on. I think of the other instruments being more linear and direct. If you want to play a particular note, you just go ahead and play it. You don't have to worry about working it into rolls so much. You don't have to worry about tying your fingers in knots. And you banjo players know that it's harder for us. I'll start with the melodic style because melody, melodic, it's a fairly logical place to start. Well, I, it's really helped me work out melodic style arrangements. Just knowing how a melody fits together really helps. And particularly if you're like me and you're a stickler for the rules... And I really don't like playing the same string twice, particularly in a fast passage in the melodic style. It's fine if you're Don Reno, but if you want that flowing melodic style, I really much prefer to put something else in on another string and then come back to that melody note rather than playing the same string twice because I, I just don't think it flows as well. And so you can use this theory to add in an extra grace note or an extra embellishment note to get you over the line and get you over those awkward hurdles of finding that you have to play two notes on the same string. And it also means that when you're making those melodic arrangements, it's easy to just take a literal approach and for it just to be a, a very direct copy of the melody. And knowing about these embellishing tones also allows you to add a little bit of your own flavour and your own pizzazz to, to what are often rather simple melodies. I remember when I was taking those melodic banjo lessons, it was just magic to me sitting down with my teacher and watching him think of any old fiddle tune and just coming up with a melodic arrangement on the spot. And I thought, how on earth do you do that? Because I, you know, I didn't know what notes I was playing really, which is another thing you should do. You should learn the notes on your fretboard. I didn't know what notes I was playing. I was just copying numbers on a piece of paper. And it was just amazing to me that you could take these simple fiddle tunes and turn them into something so ornate and so beautiful. And as I say, it's really helped me making my own melodic style arrangements since I've had this little epiphany. And the Scruggs style, which I imagine is going to be what most of you play, it's harder to, to apply directly. But once you're in the right headspace, it's actually not that hard. Um, I find improvising using the Scrugg style so much easier than with the melodic style because you're just following the idea of a basic melody line. You're not thinking about how every single note fits together. You know, the Scrugg style, when you boil it down, and Earl Scruggs has said as much, you've got to learn to hear that simple melody in amidst all of that other noise. And once you can hear that melody, and once you can concentrate on that one or two fingers or those one or two strings that are playing those melody notes, then it helps you to apply these principles of varying things up and not just playing chord tones and not just playing the licks that you've learned.
I find it particularly useful to sometimes think in terms of one or two strings that I know are playing the melody or thinking about it in terms of voices, having different components to my banjo playing. So I'll concentrate on just playing what Tony Trishka calls noise in the lower registers. And I know where the melody notes are in the upper registers. So I just make sure that there's plenty of stable chord tones around everything else and just concentrate on varying that core melodic component. When you are doing a, a Scruggs style arrangement, I find it's often helpful before I start working in all that fancy stuff and all those licks to sit down and just pick out the unadorned basic skeletal melody just on single strings so that I can picture in my head where it is that I need to land and I can put all of that noise around it, all those chord tones and all those rolls and everything, but I know exactly in my mind's eye where the melody is going to be and where it wants to go. It also helped me a lot working out my own licks. You know, how would you play a lick without just playing chord tones, without just playing arpeggios over the chord? How would you leave the D note open when you're playing over a C chord and still have it sound good, that sort of thing? But with these things, you know, we talked about the the uh, TV shopping sort of advertisement there. You know, they always peddle the easy fix. Well, there's always a catch with these things, isn't there? And I found with this, the catch is that you've got to practice to work these concepts into your subconscious so that you don't overthink, particularly during performance and during improvisation. And that's where really where the rubber hits the road for me is learning to, to master something so that it goes so deep into your into your subconscious that you can draw on it without even realising, without having to labour every note and without having to overthink everything. I've found Kenny Werner's effortless mastery really helpful with getting into this mindset of playing beautifully and playing compellingly and playing in a way that's that's rich and informed by theory but which isn't ruled by and isn't just stodgy and dry and just theoretical and isn't isn't choked by being obsessed with playing the right notes and if you're interested in diving into this music theory stuff a bit more the one book that I would wholeheartedly recommend is Hal Crook's How to Improvise if you want to do a really deep dive into theory this is the book that I'd recommend it's made for jazz students but I think he explains the terms in a really clear and easy to understand way his exercises, because they're for jazz students, are pretty far out for bluegrass players, but it's not that hard to make up your own exercises, and he's mostly talking in terms of chords, so just cross out those weirdo jazz chords and just add those good old one fours and fives and you'll be right. Now, that's, that's, uh, that's the nub of it. That's what I wanted to talk about with you guys. Now, I hope this little insight into music theory has been interesting to you. I hope I've made it clear enough and uh, I hope it's been a pleasant detour from Brad's normal programming. Have a great week and keep on picking. Bye. Wow, that was really great. I Man, I appreciate what you've done, Stuart. This thing was fun. I especially personally enjoyed the historical points that you were making about bluegrass and, and the festival scene and the origins of bluegrass in Australia with the whalers and all that. That was fascinating to me. And I am going to start doing a little bit of research. I'm, I just, I'm just curious about more information, especially about the, uh, the last, uh, uh, person to die in service of the Confederacy that, that, you know, I've read a lot of books about the uh, so-called Civil War and uh, never heard that one. I've heard, you know, some other tales of Confederate flag vessels, you know, sailing around the world. In fact, one of them, I think, ended up in, in England, at a port in England, and, you know, didn't realize the war was over. You know, it was a lack of communication. Um, anyway, fascinating stuff. 
And then uh, the music theory stuff, I uh, want to say thanks, Stuart, for plugging my books. I did not ask you to do that. And, you know, it's not one of these quid pro quo things where, you know, if you, ha if you do one of these episodes, you, you must plug my material. No, that's not the case, but I appreciate you doing that. Uh, the, you are correct that the, the banjo book, which covers all of that real basic but essential music theory information and a lot of other things, um, for banjo, that book is titled The Flint Hill Scrolls. And you are also correct, Stuart, that the mandolin version of that, which was the first book that I put out, is called Mandolin Masterclass. And within its pages, it also covers those things, such as, you know, building scales, building chords, notes of the chromatic scale, uh, all, all sorts of different chord uh, construction formulas and chord progressions. And it, it gets into all that. And both of those books, by the way, have little self-tests so that as you read a section, then there's a little quiz. And then just like the old uh, school textbook that you had, you know, in the eighth grade where, you know, the answers were in the back of the book, but you weren't supposed to look at them. Well, I put the answers in the back of the book. Um, I think any banjo player or mandolin player who feels a little weak in terms of, uh, like, chords by the numbers and referring to uh, scale, scale degrees by the numbers and all that, you read that. I, I, I'm not using any French terminology or any of the stuff that, that uh, Stuart was mentioning. If you pick up a standardized music theory textbook, and I recommend that you do. I have several of them myself. Um, it gets pretty hairy <laughs> real quick. And I try to keep the Flint Hill Scrolls and the Mandolin Masterclass real just direct conversational to the point lingo that you can understand. As you can imagine, I wrote those books the same way I talk, which is the same way I think. But uh, you can go deep down that rabbit hole of music theory if you'd like. And uh, Stuart made some excellent points about improvising. You know, if, imagine you've got a tune and you're playing the mandolin and the singer, the melody line, is just holding a note for maybe four beats. And then here you come playing that on your mandolin, and you've got this one long note, which you could do that one long note. Just keep playing streams of eighth notes or tremolo or something. But we have a tendency to want to kind of fill that up a little bit with some other things. So can you skip around the note and that's the sort of thing he's talking about we'll go up and come back and then go down and come back and or do both and harmonizing ideas and you know double stops and you can really really think through this stuff a lot and i want to um just remind you that when you hear bluegrass musicians playing and not even like the greats. I mean, almost everybody. If you pull up a fairly simple arrangement of something like, you know, old Joe Clark or something out of one of my videos or anybody, they're doing all these things, you know? So it's like this music theory stuff is, is about figuring out why you're doing what you're doing. And then once you know that, you can take that idea and apply it to other things. Anyway, Stuart should be thanked. Everybody give a big hooray for Stuart Crawford in Australia. I do appreciate you, Stuart, for stepping up, proving that it can be done. And I'm going to leave the little window open. I said October the 15th. I'm going to leave the little window open until the end of October. So Halloween, October the 31st, that's when I'm going to have to 
close the door for this first little phase because there could be a couple of other people. Uh, and by the way, I did get an email late last night when I got in from the jam from someone saying, hey, hey, please, please, is there, is there, is there any possibility I could still do this? And I, I just said, green light, go. And I will do that for you too. I, I think I was correct when I thought that listening to someone else, listening to a fellow listener, you know, we all have shared interest here, but we've got a lot of different experience and different environments and, you know, everybody's got stories. And I think once again, that you could do this. And I think Stuart proved to us that it is fun and informative. And so anyway, Everybody give a big shout out and hooray to Stuart Crawford. And thank you, Stuart. I appreciate it. We're going to go out with uh, Stuart and his pick and pal. And he told me who the guy was playing with him. And I don't have it in front of me. And I apologize for that. I just, I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. Um, playing another tune and uh, just a little bit of picking to take you out. Um, some of that bluegrass from way down in the deep south. Y'all take care, and I'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye.